Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm here today with Tara Abraham, Associate Professor in the Department of History at the University of Guelph, Ontario, to talk about her new book, Rebel Genius, the interdisciplinary, sorry, Warren McCulloch's Transdisciplinary Life in Science. Tara, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks, Mikey. Um, So, as we kick things off, we kind of like uh, for our interviewees to unpack the path that led them to uh, the work at hand, uh, what their graduate training was like, and what decisions were sort of made in uh, taking the book and or taking the material of the book and putting it in its current form. Okay, so this book kind of stemmed from the first chapter of my dissertation. So I had written a dissertation that kind of looked at the role of cybernetics and mathematical models in understanding problems in the life and medical sciences. And I did that PhD at the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology at the University of Toronto. And what I realized after I finished my PhD was that the really interesting part for me of that dissertation all came from that second chapter that really looked at um, Warren McCullough's work with Walter Pitts on applying mathematical logic to neural activity. So everything that I did since then, everything that I've done, um, has stemmed from that chapter. So I followed kind of an unconventional path in that regard. Um, And... Yeah, so everything um, kind of, uh, you know, focused mainly on McCullough and Pitts. And then McCullough kept, you know, cropping up as the main figure. And when I set out to write the book, um, it started out as kind of a a new kind of retelling of the cybernetics group story from the perspective of McCullough. But what I realized was that it was just getting very unwieldy. I'm kind of a very detail-oriented person, and so I was just getting overwhelmed with all of the details. And finally, I realized that McCullough was the person that I was really compelled by. And so I decided to kind of make it a form of scientific biography. And that was a way of using his life to kind of understand the world around him and the changes that were taking place more broadly. Yeah, and you talk a little bit in the book about kind of how there's been something of a revival of the biographic mode, which was yeah. not really in fashion in history of science for a while. So I'm wondering more about the, yeah, the decision process around that. Yeah, I mean, when I was, you know, I don't know, about 10 years ago, when I was talking or contemplating kind of framing it or how to frame the book and, and how to proceed, I mentioned to someone at a, you know, a conference or a, a cocktail party or something oh maybe I should do biography and they said no you can't I wouldn't do a biography you know and that was (laughs) see as you say it seemed to be kind of the the mode in the field that if you do biography it's you're you know you're elevating your subject in a way that might cloud your objectivity or might um you know skew the the 
your interpretation that it, it, it just might not be the best way to understand. Um, and, you know, biography and the history of science had been um, traditionally, you know, told from this great man of science perspective that really elevated the subject as some kind of scientific hero. And I think more and more um, biography and the history of science is becoming uh, a tool that can be used in a much different way. Um, you know, there was a symposium, I think, at the last year's History of Science Society meeting in Atlanta, uh, like a roundtable discussion that just focused on historical biography or hi biography in the history of science as it's, you know, people are using this method in, a, in very new and exciting ways that can kind of get around that kind of problem of, of being kind of hagiographical or, you know, telling this great man of science story. Yes. And what's interesting is that in the cybernetics literature, at least, there kind of are biographies that more or less center on the figure of Norbert Wiener. Um, yes. So what kind of what kind of figure, what is McCullough like in comparison to Norbert Wiener? And I guess for our listeners, by extension, what was Norbert Wiener like, who's kind of associated as being the central figure, at least in American cybernetics? Yes. Well, Wiener, um, Wiener was a prodigy, as you might know. And Wiener and McCullough ultimately, although they were, their relationship was crucial to kind of the emergence of the cybernetics movement, ultimately for various reasons, they kind of fell out with each other and they seemed to kind of almost compete for, um, you know, the position of the so-called uh, founding, you know, um, figure of, of cybernetics. And most of the attention has been put on Wiener. Wiener was more of a mathematician more interested in um, abstract problems. He did work with Arturo Rosenbluth on um, what Rosenbluth called theoretical biology. He was interested in biological problems, but he really approached uh, cybernetics and, you know, cybernetics for Wiener was much more about information theory, about command, control, military problems, and so on. Whereas McCullough was really, as I try to argue in the book, was much more coming at it from the... Um, you know, medical perspective, much more philosophical, much more, there's much more, I would say, of a Renaissance man than, than Norbert Wiener. Um, and in ter terms of personality, he was very, you know, irreverent. He, he was less authoritarian, I would say, than Wiener um, in terms of his mentoring style. Um, and in fact, part of their falling out really resulted from a very different way um, they treated um, the younger members of their kind of coterie, you know, people like Letvin and Pitts. Yeah, and I think that as somebody who kind of works on uh, some of this material, what always fascinates me is just the the size of the characters and the kind of crazy biographical details. So I'm wondering if you could just give us a sense of what uh, McCullough was like personally, how his kind of, what were his idiosyncratic routines, political beliefs, the kind of stuff that your biographical approach really, really brings to light. Well, McCullough, I don't think um, if I, you know, was being interviewed by McCullough or McCullough, I was interviewing him, it would be a very daunting experience. Um, he didn't suffer fools gladly, although he was quite patient. Um, he raised his children. Um, so he, he's, you know, a New Englander um, at in his roots and his, um, he raised his children in a very, um, you know, he treated his children almost in a, in a very respectful way, not an authoritarian way. His, you know, his children all called, um, Warren and his wife, uh, uh, Rook and Warren. 
Um, he, uh, you know, um, his political beliefs, I, I don't think he was kind of a card carrying member of any political party, but he was very progressive, very, um, um, you know, you'd probably be kind of more on the Democrat side, um, very open minded, but not a joiner. I remember a, a you know, a quote from a letter, I, I think the ACLU had asked him to join. And he said, I'm not a joiner, you know, even though his sentiment or his, his positions might kind of align nice, quite squarely with the ACLUs. He, he really just didn't want to kind of be part of any uh, party or, or, you know, official group. Um, very flamboyant, always aiming to kind of impress people, um, you know, uh, someone as brilliant as John von Neumann found Warren kind of impenetrable at times, um, you know, almost deliberately going out of his way to kind of confuse things. But at the same time, his his son David told me uh, that Warren would, you know, pause in the middle of a, a talk. And if he felt like the, the audience really wasn't with him, he would kind of stop and start again. So he he, he did have this other side you know, he wasn't like that with his students. With his students, he was he was patient, respectful, always elevated them and made them feel like they had something important to say. And so as a mentor, I argue in the book that that, that mentoring ability that he had that was very egalitarian is a really big part of his legacy. So that conversation with, um, with his son that you bring up uh, kind of leads me to the question of sources. I mean, there's, you know, rich correspondence and letters, but what were some of the other ways that you went about researching um, the personages that you um, account for in the book? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I did the, I went through the traditional archival uh, route. You know, I spent a lot of time at the Rockefeller Archive Center um, at the American Philosophical Society Library where... Uh, McCullough's papers are held. Um, but yeah, because, you know, some of the people in, in Warren's life were still around um, happily. And so I was able to interview Jerry Letvin um, in the early 2000s, um, which was quite a privilege, um, and McCullough's um, son and daughters. Um, and so that was one way that I was able to kind of get a sense of um, and as, in addition, his um, his students, Manuel Bloom, uh, generously, um, I was able to, he gave me a, quite a bit of his time. I was able to interview him on several occasions. So he really helped kind of round out that picture. Um, and, you know, I took a lot of what was said with a grain of salt. But at the same time, um, you know, I tried to treat their recollections, um, you know, as something that could kind of help me construct this persona that he that he kind of either you know in part generated himself, but in part kind of his his contemporaries generated for him. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested also in uh, what you do nicely in the book is I feel like in many other accounts we come to know McCullough as the one who organizes and is the sort of central figure for the Macy conferences. Um, yes. But you do a really good job of um, sort of detailing his career up till that point. So what are some of the highlights? I mean, he starts off um, in medicine, um, yes. but he goes through various fields. Yes. He really, I think I call him a scientific traveler and his career path isn't really that unusual, but he, he just seemed to kind of take over or not take over, but, um, he seemed to kind of 
travel between disciplines very easily. He really started out in philosophy and psychology um, at Yale, and then he went to get a medical degree at Columbia, uh, along with an MSc uh, or an MA in psychology at Columbia. Um, but then what he really was about was laboratory research. That was something that, you know, in terms of his career in medicine, it was really research-based. So research, uh, you know, experimental neurology at Columbia, um, neurophysiology at Yale in the 1930s. So really he, he, and, you know, even the laboratory, even when he was in psychiatry at Illinois, he wasn't really a bedside psychiatrist. He was really a research psychiatrist. So I, you know, he really um, had a very scientific and very philosophical approach to medicines. So he, he wasn't kind of a conventional physician. Um, yeah, so that, that's where, where he comes to cybernetics is, is in that, you know, under that identity of a neuropsychiatrist. Yeah, and it's kind of this integrationist approach that seems to, like, I mean, it's an interesting question, right? The, the question of transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, how one sees the connections between things. And it yeah. seems like what the real successful aspect of cybernetics was at the time was to unite a lot of things which would have previously been seen as disparate. Yes. And that, you know, um, people call that, you know, I mean, in part, people use cybernetics to kind of draw a firm line between, you know, the pre-World War II period and the post-World War II period. And I'm not the only person that has pointed out that, you know, the post-World War II period was a, a you know, time when there were a lot of, there was a lot of fluidity between disciplines and that seemed to kind of characterize the, the ideal um, of a, a lot of, you know, patrons for science and so on. But it seems that McCullough's story shows us as well that there, there's a lot of continuity between those two periods, that there were a lot of ways that um, even before the Second World War and even before cybernetics, you know, um, there, were, there was also fluidity between, um, between science, between medicine and philosophy. And I think, you know, cybernetics arrived at a particular moment where um, – uh, those things were kind of um, kind of being reconfigured in new ways. But I think, um, you know, even even the kind of classic disciplinary divide between the life sciences and the physical sciences, those those sorts of alliances happened uh, prior to the, the war as well. But I think for me that, you know, that alignment between physics and biology or between biomedicine and, you know, the, the kind of more hard sciences like mathematics, engineering and physics. I think that was what I found quite, you know, that's what a lot of people find interesting about cybernetics, but it was the modeling aspect that I found quite compelling and, and that I wanted to draw attention to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think we should talk more about that. So McCullough is probably best known for um, the paper that he wrote with Walter Pitts in which the uh, idea of neural nets are posited. So could you sort of explain the lead up sort of anecdotally to that paper and then what its major kind of claims and uh, conclusions were? Well, the lead up really, um, we don't have a lot of details about, you know, um, the, you know, how, how the paper coalesced. Um, Pitts was in Roshevsky's group at Chicago. McCullough was at Illinois um, in Chicago. And so they kind of through Letvin, they met each other. Pitts, as you know, was a prodigy 
really, you know, um, really quite talented and, and precocious in mathematics and logic. And McCullough had already been interested in kind of foundations, scientific foundations, providing a theoretical kind of grounding um, for for a disciplines like psychiatry. And I think what he saw in the potential of modeling uh, the relations between neurons was that kind of foundation. So he really, um, I think most of the technical aspects of that paper, which was published in uh, Reshevsky's journal, the Bulletin of Mathematical Biophysics, they, a lot of the kind of discussions and ideas were probably hammered out or at least um, discussed at, at Reshevsky's seminars in the um, probably around 1941, 1942. But um, I think the paper claims that, you know, just as um, neurons can be understood as, as you know, um, either firing or not firing, they have this all or none nature in their activity, they can be, um, you know, um, modeled using uh, Boolean logic. And Without getting into too many technical details, what um, since you know the process of logical reasoning, um, you know, can be described as well using um, Boolean logic, McCulloch and Pitts claimed that they have you know essentially were by modeling neurons this way, they're embodying a mental process in the physiology of the brain, and that was um, you know, and McCulloch claimed and the paper claimed that that had all sorts of implications for psychiatry that, you know, in, in a way, the foundational aspect um, had a little bit as well to do with um, his, his ideas around, you know, the best way to do psychiatry or, or how we should kind of really characterize psychiatry and practice psychiatry, um, less perhaps about talk therapy and psychoanalysis and more about kind of hard scientific research yeah, and there's a lot of antics sort of in that group at the time regarding yes. what their proper view of clinical psychiatry might be. I remember uh, there's at least an apocryphal story because people's memories are fallible uh, in which uh, Letvin claims that he and Pitts uh, had come up with a mathematical model for psychoses and had proposed it as a joke in this uh, seminar. Um, and so whether or not that happened or not, right, I think what's interesting to consider about this is just how much kind of play and intrigue factored into that early group. And I was wondering if you could say more about, about those dynamics. Well, if you read the letters between, so, you know, soon after that paper was published, uh, Letvin, I think both Letvin and Pitts went to Boston. And so they, the group was kind of that were only together for a few years initially, you know, kind of dispersed. And they came together again for various meetings and so on, and eventually at MIT um, in the 50s. But if you read the correspondence between them, you just get this sense of, you know, these three brilliant figures, Letvin, Pitts, and McCullough. Um, McCullough really treating them, he's like 20 years their senior, but really treating them as colleagues rather than students. Um, and just wordplay, um, you know, some of the letters that, that, you know, uh, Letvin would write, uh, McCullough are just from Boston when he first moved are just laugh out loud, funny, um, a lot of puns, a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of irreverence, you know, they're, they're cybernetics, I think in their relationships and the ways that they 
as you say, kind of satirized psychoanalysis in their scientific work. I think that says a lot about cybernetics and some of the spirit that McCullough infused the movement with. Very kind of um, almost anarchical, um, you know, trying to kind of just just ignore convention and challenge convention. Mm -hmm. And so on the note of challenging convention, I want to turn to MIT and the establishment of the neurophysiology unit. Um, So at the time, this is, I think if I'm getting my dates right, this is sort of, there's an initial group started in 1951 um, or in the early 50s. And then post um, kind of the falling out with uh, Norbert Wiener, uh, they sort of, the neurophysiology group sort of spins off on its own. So I'm wondering, like, what was the transition like for these, well, let's see, you have one kind of uh, wunderkind uh, autodidact who has yeah. taught himself mathematics. You have one or two, rather, people who have trained in neurology and psychiatry, um, and you're putting them into an environment of largely engineers and communications biophysicists. Yeah. So what was that kind of shift like? Well, for... I mean, I think for, for all three of them, they had the freedom to, to A, be working together. So they, you know, they had all ha- kind of had to do various things. Pitts had done some work down in Mexico with Rosenbluth and, Mac- and Wiener. Um, you know, they, they, they were always spread apart after that initial meeting in the early 40s. And so now they had a space where they could all collaborate. Um, they also had you know, McCullough had freedom from a lot of the administrative duties that he had at Illinois. So it meant a lot for him. Um, Leffen claims that once McCullough arrived at MIT, there was really, he had never really touched experiment again. There, there are differing ideas about that or differing kind of accounts of, of how much he was actually doing um, in terms of hands-on laboratory work at MIT. Um, he might have, you know, been more of a, a kind of mentor collaborator than an actual participant in, in a lot of the papers that were published. But I think it really gave them a lot of intellectual freedom. Um, and I think that was that was the atmosphere, I think, at the RLE. Um, even, you know, in the neurophysiology lab, it was just, um, you know, here's here's some money. You know, um, it, it, like the government was kind of throwing money at, at, at the RLE. And so it was really a very exciting, dynamic time. It allowed them to kind of pursue, you know, McCullough was pursuing a bunch of different kind of side projects during this period. And so it's really difficult to say, OK, this is what his research was about during this period. Um, but it was really kind of. I mean, I, he, he wasn't really participating in any formal way in psychiatry at that point, maybe giving kind of public lectures or ta- invited talks. But it was really, I mean, that's why I call him the engineer. He really had left the world of medicine behind. And I think, you know, the brain for McCullough, you know, this is where that big transformation that I try to argue in the book took, takes place, that the brain becomes something that's not not just attached to medicine anymore. It becomes something that can be approached with a variety of disciplinary tools. Yeah, and one of the things that's interesting is just at this time, how many different disciplines are kind of consolidating and emerging with different sets of claims on the brain. So, yeah. for instance, you detail or you, d- you discuss 
um, the formation of Francis O. Schmidt's uh, yes. neurosciences research program around the same time in uh, 1963 at MIT. Yeah. And at the same time, you also have uh, the Dartmouth Conference and symbolic AI starting up. So, uh, And McCullough's originally in those discussions, but then he's kind of, he doesn't end up going to the conference and is sort of on the margins there. So what is his relationship as kind of a cybernetician to these other emerging fields in the mind sciences? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, with AI, I mean, I think I, I try to kind of argue in the book that people like um, Marvin Minsky really, you know, looked up to McCullough and, and kind of took from him a style of thinking and a style of inquiring. But I think the AI people, at least in the Dartmouth kind of early configurations, were really... Um, I think cybernetics wasn't necessarily where it was at. Cybernetics in the kind of Macy version of cybernetics. I think by the end of the Macy conferences, a lot of people in that area, um, you know, some of the early people in cognitive psychology were were kind of skeptical of of cybernetics or that they had seen cybernetics as, had, as kind of, it hadn't fallen off the rails, but it was really becoming quite diffuse. It was... Um, the vision had come, become much more cloudy. And I think the AI people saw themselves as doing something quite different. And in fact, they were. I mean, McCullough was always interested in the brain. That was kind of at the, the heart of what he was doing. So with the AI people, that, you know, they weren't as interested in the brain itself, but rather, you know, modeling intelligence or modeling intelligent behavior. Um, as for Francis Schmidt, I tried to get at, you know, looking at the archives at MIT, some evidence of convergence between Schmidt's group and McCullough's group. And there wasn't a lot. Um, I think there was a, a meeting or two that McCullough was invited to. But I think a lot of what Schmidt was doing was really on the tales of uh, molecular biology. And I think that was really not what McCullough was you know, that wasn't part of what he was doing. He, he kind of was not part of that generation. Um, yeah, so I think he was, he, he wasn't out of step with these other groups, but there, it, it's not that these, you know, and we can say, oh, well, AI, you know, neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience, cognitive psychology, all of these kind of form the cognitive sciences today. But McCullough's role in that is, is kind of more complex and ambiguous. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult to kind of, draw straight lines between the two. I think it's, um, I think it's more kind of the style of inquiring and that use of modeling, um, that I think really is where McCullough's legacy shows up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then another interesting, um, or maybe it's just interesting to me, but what I find kind of paradoxical is that, so neural nets are discussed widely at the time. Um, they're a subject in the Macy conferences. And then with the rise of specific programs in AI, neural nets from a lot of the mainstream AI work, they kind of recede from the background, but then creep back up with the uh, sort of rise of machine learning. So I'm just wondering, like, how do we how do we understand this reappearance of neural nets kind of all of a sudden in more recent discourse? And how related is that to the work that McCullough was doing? Well, um, that I mean, the, yeah, as you know, the story is that when Minsky and Papert published uh, Perceptrons, I think at the end of the 60s, 
you know, it ushered in this kind of classic AI period where McCullough's style of, of um, you know, modeling neural activity was kind of pushed to the side. And then more recently, you know, um, there's been more of a convergence um, between, um, you know, that more connectionist style of doing things, you know, that, that kind of is considered what AI is about. And I think, I mean, for me, um, you know, it's, it, the field, you know, computational neuroscience, um, and, and, uh, theoretical neuroscience, a lot of, um, and more recent AI, I mean, I think McCullough, you know, although he at MIT was doing a lot of modeling, a lot of, you know, work with kind of computational systems, he really, I think, was fundamentally interested in, you know, how does the brain do it? And I think that was always his goal. And so I don't know that even if um, some of the more recent AI people that are looking at neural networks um, and connectionism are kind of taking a a page from what McCullough and Pitts were doing or what McCullough had been doing, I still think there's a fundamental difference um, between, um, you know, what their, their, their object of inquiry is different than McCullough's. And I think it's much more abstract. It's much more mathematical. Um, You know, some of it almost seems to me like a branch of mathematics rather than, or engineering rather than neuroscience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I guess um, my last question really about McCullough is how would you characterize him as a kind of a science popularizer? I mean, Wiener is really well known for the book Cybernetics and also the human uses of human beings. Um, and he really made a big effort to you know communicate quite broadly. And then McCullough has that volume Embodiments of Mind that yeah. sort of stands as his major contribution there. But like, Compared to compared to Wiener, what was his role and interest in science popularization as a kind of distinctive post-war um, Warren Weaver Rockefeller Foundation kind of enterprise? I, you know, um, I mean, embodiments of mind was, you know, I think he was invited. Uh, I, I, I tried to kind of track down correspondence about how that kind of came into being. Um, and I imagine he was invited by MIT press to put, you know, together a, a, a collection of his papers, but, you know, many of them are impenetrable. So I don't, I don't think that McCullough was as interested in as Wiener or did not capitalize on perhaps opportunities he might've had to, to popularize or to, um, to reach kind of more public audiences, um, you know, um, yeah, I mean, most of the, the records of, of talks that he gave, he did, you know, he, he did speak to kind of non-scientists. I mean, he, he was a member of the Chicago Literary Club, and he was invited to give talks um, to various groups. But I think he wasn't a popularizer in the same way as Wiener was. He, he um, yeah, just really wasn't, I mean, embodiments of mind kind of became, you know, um, there was definitely an audience for that, that publication and, and his colleagues were very kind of enchanted by his poetry, but I don't think, um, he tried to kind of reach, um, 
you know, reach popular audiences in, in quite the same way that Wiener did. Great. Well, thank you so much. And so as we're kind of wrapping up, uh, we'd like to ask our interviewees what they're working on now. I mean, obviously, this has been uh, this book's been a long time coming and yeah. people often have different projects waiting. So we'd love to hear about that. Um, well, you know, uh, when I was finishing, you know, before I finished the book, I mean, you're, when you're in the midst of writing, you're like, how am I ever going to do this again? Or what am I, you know, what's going to kind of uh, capture my interest in the same way? And this might be a kind of a, a typical sort of answer, but I think basically I'm pursuing questions that I, I didn't have time to answer in my book. So uh, the period that really made me scratch my head a lot and I, I had, you know, I kept trying to find answers uh, was the period, the interwar period in psychiatry um, and the various, I mean, I'm still interested in disciplines. I'm still interested in how, um, you know, how professional disciplines kind of articulate their identities, um, members of those disciplines, um, and really how, you know, brain scientists and um, psychiatrists during this period um, interacted, you know, not in a not in a mind-brain kind of um, conflict, um, but what I'm finding is that um, a lot of uh, there, you know, the fluidity that I describe in other areas during this period existed um, during this period as well. So the project I'm working on now is really looking at the entry of psychiatry into medical education. Um, particular, I'm starting with Harvard because I was familiar with that area. And um, so I'm looking at um, medical school um, registers and the curriculum um, and looking at because psychiatry until around the turn of the century didn't really have a place in medical school. So I'm looking at um, how it using Harvard as a first kind of case study, how, um, you know, how the kind of educational standards were were created and what it did to the other people that were looking at diseases of the nervous system during this period. So it's, again, answering questions that, you know, a certain chapter in my book I couldn't answer. I didn't have time to answer. Great. Thank you so much for your time uh, this afternoon. And uh, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, Rebel Genius is available through MIT Press. Thank you.